I've been going to Nantucket since the late 1970s with my family for summer vacations. And I thought I knew everything there was to know in a, in a way about the history of the island in terms of whaling and whaling wives, but I did not know about the fire until 2018 when I read two paragraphs about it in a Nathaniel Philbrick history of the island. And I was like, two paragraphs? That's not enough. Like, <laughs> you got me hooked. Tell me more. Oh, wait. So a gardener would be a pantser and uh, an architect yes. is. Okay. Yes. I was like, yes. hold on. Let me go. <laughs> Mix my metaphors. I'm definitely a gardener. I slash pantser. And I'm like, I know I'm with my people. If you guys already know the term plotter or pantser, because I usually yeah. sit and explain yeah. that to people. But yeah, no, I know. I really, some of my work, I've had more of an idea. Like we came here to forget my last novel because that was much more based on some actual events in my life that one came out a lot more fully fleshed in the first draft my usual process was the process of this book where I write so many drafts of a book I write hundred thousand word drafts trying to figure out what I'm doing and what I'm talking about and that for me is actually the the fun of writing early drafts so I really just had my character of Sam and kind of a vague idea about her backstory and Jake and then it really all developed on the page Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to the newest episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. We love to highlight storytelling, and on this episode, we are highlighting two writers whose books talk about lives that are connected by events and people that pull it all together. Each is set in different times, but the connections between the characters are very similar. I am Ron Block. And I'm Meg Walker, lifelong publishing professional and managing director of Friends in Fiction. Our first guest is Julie Gerstenblatt author of the recently released Daughters of Nantucket, which has been generating a lot of buzz and reader praise. Julie holds a doctorate in curriculum and instruction from Teachers College, Columbia University. Her essays have appeared in the Huffington Post and Cognoscenti, among others. When not writing, Julie is a college essay coach, as well as a producer and on-air host for A Mighty Blaze. A native New Yorker, Julie now lives in coastal Rhode Island with her family and one very smart Shishan Poo. Daughters of Nantucket is her first novel. Welcome to the podcast, Julie. Thank you. Yay. <laughs> so glad you, we could finally pull this together. It's so great to have you here. Yes. Let's get right to it, though. Um, tell us what Daughters of Nantucket is about, but then what we always like to kind of add to that is what is those Daughters of Nantucket really about? Mm, okay, sure. So Daughters of Nantucket is about three women whose lives intersect in the days leading up to Nantucket's Great Fire of 1846. I like to say that their personal dramas, conflicts, and all of their own secrets and lies kind of catch up to them and hit a climax just as the fire hits the town. Ooh, that's awesome. And what is it really about? I think it's about community. I think it's about connection and trying to do the best you can with what you know about yourself and the world around you and hopefully growing through, you know, both experiences that happen to you that shape you under duress like a fire and also some introspection and through relationships with others. Very well said. Love that. <laughs> well, it's always fascinating to hear how a book idea is born. Can you share the initial idea for the book and how it came to you and, and then how it developed from there? Sure. I have been going to Nantucket since the late 1970s with my family for summer vacations. And I 
thought I knew everything there was to know in a, in a way about the history of the island in terms of whaling and whaling wives, but I did not know about the fire until 2018 when I read two paragraphs about it in a Nathaniel Philbrick history of the island. And I was like, two paragraphs? That's not enough. Like, (laughs) you got me hooked. Tell me more. And he, you know, he kind of moves on and tells the history of everything on the island. So I was curious. I did some digging. I found a self-published history of the fire itself. And once I read that, I knew that I could picture myself there. I could see the town burning. I could smell it. And I wanted to write it. That's awesome. Knowing that, I mean, it's hard to imagine a fire ravaging such a small, self-contained place, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's unique is that Nantucket sort of feels like it did. You know, I wasn't there in 1846, but I know that through the Historical Preservation Society, much of downtown is as it was um, when they rebuilt it right after the fire, which is similar in the footprint and the layout and look of what it was right before. So you step off that ferry and you feel transported back in time. And I think Definitely. that it's easy to, sure do. to get right into that story. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of my favorite places I've ever been. Mm-hmm. It's such a good, when you step off the boat, boy, you're, you just go, ah. <laughs> so it, it's really such a wonderful story. And it's really kind of hard to believe it's a debut as well. But will you share a little bit about your three main characters and how they're connected? Yes. The first character I came up with was Eliza Macy. She's sort of your typical whaling wife. She's wealthy, she's lonely, and she's a little desperate as the story opens. Whalers' wives spent many years apart from their husbands. and probably of their 20-year marriage. They only were ever in the same place on Nantucket for three years in total, let's say. And that was interesting to me because this marriage that's very distant. And after years of this, to meet her at a time when she gets a letter from him saying he's not coming home as planned, she's out of money, she's out of patience, she's not her best self. And She is a traditional wife and mother living in one of the big homes on Upper Main Street. So I started with her. And then I thought, well, who would be a good counterpoint to someone like Eliza? And I thought of the real historical figure, Mariah Mitchell, who was the first female librarian in America. And that was on Nantucket. Yay! Go, Mariah! And I feel like that is a job that anywhere else would have been held by a man, but on an island with many of the men away, she had opportunity. Women in general had more opportunity there. And she was very well-educated, bright, self-motivated, and independent. So she worked at the Athenaeum by day, and she also helped her father gaze at stars and as an astronomer at night from the rooftop of the uh, Pacific Bank Observatory that she and her father created. She then went on to teach at Vassar, be an astronomer. And um, so she is a woman of science. She never married. And she was bringing in her own funds and money at the time. So she's a good balance and maybe friend to, you know, to Eliza. And um, then the book before this, I wrote a hundred pages of something that I never finished, but I wrote it in three points of view. And that was the first time I had ever done that. And I loved it. So then I, I knew I wanted three. I just felt that there was some power in that, the, the Ron Hermione sort of uh, <laughs> thing, maybe. And so I started reading and learned about a thriving Black community on Nantucket that was living sort of parallel to the white community and about which I did not know very much. And Meg was born from that. And in particular, two women who, as girls, had passed the entrance exam for the high school, but because of their skin color, they were not allowed entry. And Meg is based on someone who would have, you know, who did pass the entrance exam, did not get in, and now has children herself in the school, a daughter in the school, and a child on the way. And she wants better and more for her children. 
and she also has an ideal marriage and um, they work, work together in partnership, both in business and in life. And I liked exploring the differences in those kind of women. Yeah, That's they're great. very distinct characters too. They're separate, and then but when they interact with each other, it's kind of comes off the page wonderfully. Um, what would like to know too? I know that the the spark of the story started with um, learning about the fire, but as you started to write, did you develop your characters first, or did you write about the fire first? And how did they meet up in the on the on the page? Yeah, so I wanted to write the fire really badly, but um, I needed it to kind of build up to it. So I wrote the characters first and then was exploring so much with the characters. There were scenes where they're just like sitting and having tea with one another or playing whist. And it wasn't getting to the fire. And I was so frustrated after 300 pages or more and not getting to the fire. And knowing that readers wouldn't put up with that either. And I said to my friend, Trisha, who's in my writing group, "Ah, I just want to write that fire already. And she's like, you're the one writing the book. Just (laughs) I think you can give yourself permission to just skip over that whatever 50 page gap that you think is there, write the fire and then see how that informs earlier parts of the novel. And, And I did discover then that putting the characters under pressure like that helped me revise and rewrite the beginning. Terrific. Love that. Well, we'd love to hear more about your research. I know, you know, you said you got the the, the original idea of when you read about um, the fire in one of Nat Philbrick's books. I'm assuming that's a way offshore. Yes. Yes. He's a good friend of mine, a client of mine. And also we've had him on the podcast before. So he's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. We're big fans of his work. But yes. Um, so let's hear about your research. So how did you delve into the, the Great Fire and, and, and building the story world of these characters in that time period? So there really is only one book about the fire, and that was by V.B. Gowdy, who self-published it, as I said, and I found it at Nantucket Bookworks on Nantucket. And then I read about everything surrounding you know, whaling, whaling wives, New England at the time, Quakers, suffragists, abolitionists, and education on the island. There's a book called A Line in the Sand that's all about what was happening with segregation and um, re, then they desegregated and then resegregated the schools over one year. And I have that timeline. It's a little bit off in true history, but I was able to just move it a little so that these things were happening at the same time about the Wampanoag and, and about, you know, ships and merchant ships and all of the whaling ships. And then I kind of had to let a lot of that research go so that I could let my characters rise to the surface and not be too much of a teacher, but hope that the time and place came through. Love it that. did. It had a great feel for the, that that whole time period in the town, and I could I could just picture the buildings and the homes, and oh. it really did. I mean, I you know I, you hear authors of historical fiction talk about that dilemma all the time, right? Like how not to put too much of your homework on the page so it comes off like a term paper. But um, <laughs> yeah. this definitely does not feel that way. So great okay. job. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> ultimately, what I want is for people to be you know feel enjoyment and entertained. And I love historical fiction because I like to learn about things through the characters and, and through fiction, but um, I don't want, I'm a teacher by train, training oh, and I didn't right. want to train. Right. There you go. Uh, so well, you've touched on this a little bit, but one of the issues that the residents deal with is racism within the community. Can you talk about weaving that into the story? Because it you could feel that you did it with such care. And I know that that's not always the case, but how, how did it go for you? So I think Meg is certainly one of my favorite characters and I found her sort of easy to write. What was hard to do was decide to include the point of view of a black woman as a character, given that I'm a white woman and there are certainly sensitivities and, and many reasons not to. So the big question for me was, I brought it to my writing group, I brought it to friends and said, how do I tell this story now that I know this huge piece of history um, in a way that 
represents and is fair, but isn't me overstepping somebody else's, you know, telling somebody else's story. And so I wrote Meg, they sort of like, it was like, nobody can give you permission. And I just had to decide that I'd rather Meg tell her story than the two white women in the book tell it for her from their points of view. That's a great point. That's a great point. And that's when I, I felt and also there was like sort of a line I spoke to um, my friend Jenna Blum, who writes World War II fiction. And she said, I, I won't go into the camps. I do not write from inside Auschwitz. I do not write in places that trauma is the lived experience because I didn't experience that. And I don't feel comfortable doing that. She said, for you, that might be slavery. Um, and you're not going to write about an escaped slave or someone on the plantation where you're dealing with characters at different levels of power. So for Meg to be freeborn from to, to the third generation, three, um, well-educated and really well-respected in the community because of her father and grandfather's standing made me feel as comfortable as humanly possible writing about racism from her point of view. Nice. You did a great job. Yeah, really. Well, in your author's note, you thank a great number of people in your sphere. We'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about joining Grub Street Circle and how you think something like that can truly be a godsend to a writer. Oh, yeah. It did change my life, which I say in the back of the book. I moved from New York to Rhode Island nine years ago. I've been writing you know, probably I've written five novels. I've had three agents and I had a good writing community in New York too, but it wasn't until I moved to Rhode Island and met Jenna Blum and got to Boston and Grub Street that, um, I met this huge community of writers that support one another and give feedback and, you know, in this workshop that I joined. So I think writing alone, you write alone and you can get very convinced that your story is going the right way without, you know, anybody to tell you otherwise. And if you don't have an agent or an editor at the point when you're first writing and debut, I think you need honest and critical feedback to improve your work. And in the same way that, you know, doctors do rounds and other doctors are there telling them, like, let's look at this case together and put our heads together and do what's best for the patient. Well, if the patient is my book, I wanted all of the experts in the room to give me their feedback too. I can't take from 12 people everybody's suggestions, no. but I could right. figure out what resonated with me. And I would have people get on the phone with me, my friend Mark Cecil, and I would hammer out a character over the phone for an hour as if this were a real problem. And who else is going to treat your imaginary characters as real people, but other writers? Other writers, yeah. Yeah, That's so I, I, love, I love my writing community. I, I, you know, credit them with so much. I feel like I've learned a great deal about how to write successfully for publishing, which is different than just writing a nice story. Yes, for sure. Yes. Jenna's a good friend of mine too. And mm -hmm. I just uh, adore her and I can see where she would be such a great help. And I've interacted with Mark a little bit and mm -hmm. I can tell where he would be really good. It sounds like a really great setup and as all the things that come out of that whole group you have are just astounding. And of course, a mighty blaze. We just love, love, yeah, love everything that. about it. So yeah, kudos to them. Thank well, thank you, Julie. Our next guest is Andrea Dunlop author of the newly released Women Are the Fiercest Creatures, one of the first publications from the new Zibby Books imprint. And it's also been met with wide acclaim. Andrea is the author of the novels Losing the Light, She Regrets Nothing, and We Came Here to Forget, as well as the novels novella Broken Bay. She's the creator and host of the true crime podcast, Nobody Should Believe Me. <laughs> I love that title. <laughs> she lives in Seattle with her husband and children. Welcome to the podcast, Andrea. Fun fact, Andrea and I used to work together back in a former life when we were both working in-house at Doubleday. So it's so good to see you again. It's so nice to see you too, Meg. Thank you guys yeah. for having me. I know we were just talking about how small publishing and kind of the entire books world is. You just is. see people. I think especially if you worked in New York at any point, you see people over and over again. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's the it's the most incestuous business ever. And I swear, I think every company I ever worked for is now the same company. 
<laughs> it has it, that that has definitely been the trend. Right. Although, thankfully, the the DOJ put the stops to uh, uh, the big the big gobbling up that yeah, almost happened. Absolutely, so, yeah. that was all, all for the best. But um, so uh, yeah. when we're done recording, I want all the dirt. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen. Why don't we start with our favorite question? So, Andrea, tell us what women are the fiercest creatures is about, and then what's it really about. That's such a great question. So the uh, Women Are the Fiercest Creatures is the story of two overlooked single mothers who have made huge contributions to a tech company that their mutual ex, ex ex-husband and ex-boyfriend respectively, is about to take public for a lot of money. And actually there are, much like Julie's book, three women concerned. At one point it was there, I had the perspectives of all three. So we'll, we'll talk about, we'll talk about that. I'm sure. What (laughs) Women Are the Fiercest Creatures is really about is all of the invisible work that women do and the way that women get written out of both history and the present day narratives for big companies, big accomplishments, what have you. True that. When I first read the description of your book, it gave me major nine to five vibes, I have to say. (laughs) Iconic, iconic movie. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) And boy, that movie, I watched that recently. That movie really holds up. It does hold up. This is like really feels, unfortunately, like way too relevant, especially like the utopian vision at the end where they have like the childcare in the office. I was like, still all good ideas. Dolly Parton's character for president. Yeah. Yeah. Look how far we've come. Nah. Yeah, I know. It's like the more things change, the more they right. stay the same. But right. yeah, it's been an interesting time to have this book out because I will tell you that's been like talking about how things have or have not changed or are changing in the wrong direction for women is certainly something that's on a lot of people's minds. Absolutely. Yes, it comes through. It, boy, does it come through here. I love it. Okay. Well, I want to know, well, we all want to know, where <laughs> did the original idea for this novel come from? Where did it spark? I started this book when I was pregnant with my older daughter, who is now four and a half, and I finished it when I was pregnant with my son, who is nine months old. So this was really came from my entry into motherhood, which is such a fascinating experience and at any time in history and is a particularly fascinating experience maybe now. You know, when I was pregnant with my daughter, I remember being extremely pregnant and taking a walk and I'd just been listening on NPR to the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. And that was the day that some older man decided to come up to me and rub my belly. And I just about took his head off. Yes, this is something people do. Um, Fortunately, that was the only time it ever happened to me during both pregnancies. But I was walking and this older guy came up to me and, you know, I had my headphones in. I was walking my dog and he came up and said, boy, you must feel as big as a house and just reached and rubbed my stomach. And I smacked his hand away and I said, sir, don't touch women you don't know. Like, what are you doing? And just like kind of stormed off. And I I just was like, oh, my God, it just I was. So I, I think like there was an earlier version of this book that was very angry. Um, and I'm sure some of that still comes <laughs> through, Well, rightfully but, so. You know, yeah. And like, I mean, it, you know, it was really interesting. I was asked in an interview, um, which is, it, it's available. It's a my Lit Hub interview. And, you know, somebody was asking me like about the title and, and I mentioned, I, I said, well, you know, it's, a, it's really like, it's a pretty rage inducing time to be a woman. And, and he said, well, but you know, if you're like a woman in Seattle, you know, like you, for example, well, like things are pretty all right. And I was like, that's not really like the way that I look at the world, but okay. (laughs) I actually do care about, you know, other women, including, you know, I don't know, my daughter. There's this thing called empathy, you know, where you're supposed to care about (laughs) Right. And also like, and also like, it's kind of that encroaching, you know, thing. And that's like a whole other tirade, but, um, but yeah, so I mean, really, you know, like I, I had such a good experience with childbirth both times. I was really lucky in that and, and had, you know, a really good support system, but it made me realize how much, you know, every woman is really like on their own with this in this country and in our culture in that like we don't have any institutional support for mothers at all. You know, being that I'm a person that works for myself, I didn't get anything, you know, I don't get any paid maternity leave. I don't get any, you know, benefits of any kind from, you know, any sort of organizational or institutional stand standpoint. You know, my husband got a week of paternity leave the second Ooh. time. And they really acted like they were doing something there. So, but yeah, I mean, it just, you know, it it just makes you, I think it's impossible to become a mother in this country, especially in this moment and not be really 
angry. Um, and so I, it just got me thinking a lot about sort of all, and I think also, you know, the, the pandemic also happened uh, during the time that I was writing this book. And I think the the issues of kind of the, the question of women's invisible labor came to the surface in a way that I haven't seen it come to the surface before in our discussions because everyone was at home and it was just so, so visible suddenly, like who was doing most of the child care. So yeah, I mean, and you see some women dropping out of the workforce in sort of unprecedented numbers. So yeah, I mean, all of those things were just a massive influence on on this book. And then, you know, obviously, like, you know, as Julie was talking about, like, the characters are always central, right? You have all your issues that are sort of bearing down uh, on you when you're writing the book. But I just, I started off with my main character of Sam and and had this idea about a woman that really was being haunted by something from her past that she found she just couldn't get over and was going to have to go back and make right. Yeah. So, well, let's talk about the characters. So we'd love to hear a little bit more about how you developed each of them and the inspiration for each. And um, were they based on anyone specific? (laughs) No, you know, my characters sometimes, and I actually for this book, not, not so specifically. I mean, I, I think my characters sometimes have you know, jumping off points of, of real life people that, that inspire them. And certainly like, you know, there are elements of certain of my friends in, in Sam and Anna and their backstories and kind of like where they, you know, how they approach motherhood. And those are, you know, I have friends who are single moms and, you know, both Sam and Anna are dealing with being single moms. And that's something that I, I, think is so, so incredible how many women do that and how hard that is. I mean, if you want to just talk about like, there's no institutional support, so you really have to rely on, you know, your partner and your family and, you know, also your women friends, I think a lot. And there's a lot of that in this book as well, but you know, no, no specific people, but yeah, I mean, I started off with the character of Sam and then I really think I got into this, you know, my at the, he's sort of at the center of the book, but the book is very much not about him. You know, the question of what's it about? What's it, what's it really about? Is this, um, you know, tech impresario Jake Sarnoff, who is about to take his company public. And so all three of the main female characters, Jessica, who's his current younger wife, who's pregnant during the, uh, during the time span of the book. And then Anna is his uh, recent ex-wife and mother of two of his children. And then Sam is his ex-girlfriend, you know, have all really made these significant contributions to his company to his life and just sort of like made him who he is. It's kind of a a look at the like women behind the man and the woman behind the man thing. And it's like, that's something I don't think we question enough. It's like, well, why is she behind him? Like, why does she have to be back there? Like, Can't she was never like out in front, you know, and you don't really hear about like the man behind the woman. Although there are, I think a great many great men that, that support women, including my wonderful husband, you know, who does all the cooking and, and make sure we have, paper towels and things like that, that I'm very adept at as a, as a parent or domestic person. Well, that's very Um, helpful. It is. Yes, it is. And I think like, you know, it's funny how much I talk about my husband when people ask me about like my writing and sort of like, how do you get it all? You know, how do you, how do you do it? And I'm like, well, you know, that's like, you got to pick the right husband if you're, or pick the right partner, whoever you're, you're picking, if you're going to parent and and do anything else as a woman in this country. So. Absolutely. That's cool. So I want to ask a little bit about your approach to writing. Was the book kind of fully fleshed out before you sat down to write or did it kind of develop as you write, like sit down and go like they call it either plotter, pantser, or the the newer term I love is, are you a gardener or an architect? (laughs) Oh, wait. So a gardener would be a pantser? And uh, an architect yes. is okay. Yes, I was like, yes. wait, hold on, let me go <laughs> mix my metaphors. I'm definitely a gardener. I uh, slash pantser, and I'm like, I know I'm with my people. If you guys already know the term plotter or pantser, because I usually yeah. sit and explain yeah. that to people. But yeah, I know I I really some of my work I've had more of an idea. Like we came here to forget my last novel because that was much more based on some actual events in my life. That one came out a lot more fully fleshed in the first draft. My usual process was the process of this book where I write so many drafts of a book. I write 100,000 word drafts trying to figure out what I'm doing and what I'm talking about. And that for me is actually the the fun of writing early drafts. So I really just had my character of Sam and kind of a vague idea about about her backstory and Jake. And then, and then it really all developed on the page. So yeah, I, I very much figure out what I'm doing while I'm going for the most part. Good. I love gardeners. <laughs> I think it's fun. I think I'd get too bored if I had an outline. I think I'd make the outline and then probably abandon it. <laughs> what I, do. Yeah, I was talking to somebody recently who said it, that they like being a gardener because they love surprising themselves as they as they write along. 
Yeah, yeah 100%. I, I yeah. think that was Hank Philippi Ryan who said that, wasn't it? She loves to surprise herself yes. as she writes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think, you know, you, you think so much about your characters when you're not writing and that, you know, those moments where you're just like out walking your dog and, and you go, oh my gosh, this is what happened. This is the thing that, you know, you're sort of trying to puzzle things out. And I just think that's like the most fun part of the process. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So your book at its core, Andrea, is a strong social commentary. And, and we were talked a little bit about this already, but you have to love strong female characters standing up for themselves. So can you talk to us a little bit about what you most wanted to convey and your focus on women's issues in this book? Like, what do you hope your readers take away from it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's like Julie said, I echo this, that, you know, you you hope you hope your readers have something to take away, but if they just have a good time, that's great too, right? Like I think always our, I, I always think of my first job as a writer is to entertain, to pull people into your imaginary world, to give them a little break from real life. Um, even if they are thinking of some things that are pertinent to real life as, as I hope they do with this book as it's a contemporary novel. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I always want to keep readers invested in my characters and turning pages first and foremost, but certainly I hope that people will sort of maybe question some of the dominant narratives we have about particularly, I think, like women in tech. You know, I read an excellent book while I was doing some research for this called um, Brotopia, which is just all about the history of women in tech. And I I couldn't believe, you know, sort of some of the stuff I learned about the misconceptions that we have about like who makes a good programmer. And I learned that like programming was originally seen as women's work because it was sort of seen as the sort of secretarial work. And so you just, I, I think like, I hope people sort of just yeah, question some of the narratives they've been given about about men and women and who who belongs in an entrepreneurial space and who belongs kind of in the tech world. And who gets all the credit, right? Right. right. Who gets all the credit and all the funding? I mean, one of the things that really <laughs> stuck with me about this, because there is like a strong sort of thing about, you know, venture capital funding and taking companies public and all that kind of thing, you know, is that like only 2% of companies that get venture capital funding are female-led teams, despite the fact that they consistently outperform male-led teams. And I was like, I expected the number to be pathetic, but 2%, I was like, that's it's really, really pathetic. worse than pathetic. I thought. So, yeah. so I think we really have this idea of like, oh, it's just, you know, these young male college dropouts that are having all these like great ideas. And it's just like, nope, that's just who gets the money thrown at them, regardless exactly. of how good idea yeah. their ideas are yeah. or not. Or, you know? or who steps up and takes all the credit. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And you did. I, there were some of these interesting, you know, there was an interesting sort of tech stories about like male and female founders, like in particular, the founders of um, Tinder and then Whitney Wolford, who broke off and, and founded Bumble because she got sort of, you know, her romantic relationship that she was in broke up and she got kind of pushed out of Tinder. So I, you know, that was definitely like stories like that definitely were were really interesting to think about writing this book. They were. So you have one of the initial books that have been published by Zibby Books. Can you share what that process was and what it was like to work with Zibby and, and the gang? Yeah, it was so much fun. So I, um, and it still is so much fun. I, yeah, my, my other three books were published by Atria who, and they're a part of Simon and Schuster. So just, you know, like a very, a very big house. And, um, I, you know, loved a lot of the people that I, that I worked with there and, you know, we were just very excited. My agent and I, Carly Waters and I, you know, we just submitted to, to Zibby and Lee Newman, who was our original partner for Zibby books, you know, when they were, when they were getting the house going, we were on submission with, with this novel. And I was just really excited to try something new. Honestly, I think, you know, I love book publishing or I love a lot of things about book publishing. I love a lot of people within book publishing, but you know, Meg, you've been in publishing for a long time. Um, I've been, you know, I was, I was a behind the scenes professional for a long time before I was an author. And there's a lot of things about book publishing that drives me crazy. And one of the things is it's um, general unwillingness to try new things. And so it can be a very sort of old school stayed stuck in its ways industry. And I think, you know, especially when you're with a really large corporate publisher, and if you're not, you know, the lead title, then then that just, you know, I, I think that's that's an experience that I'd had, and I was just ready to sort of try something new. And uh, there was a lot of things about Zibby's just model that really appealed to me. Number one, they yeah. only do one book a month, so it's sort of this every title is a lead title ethos, and that's been really great. And just to have kind of all of that focus and attention has been a really good experience. And you know, it's just also like it's a it's a it, it, 
new team and they're all doing a sort of fresh new thing. And that enthusiasm was really exciting. You know, I, I, I love publishing folks, but like, we're always, all the sky is falling all the time. A little bit. So, you <laughs> no, know, it's, there just is a little of that that like permeates all of publishing. I think sure. publishing people will know and what I'm talking about. It's refreshing to be a part of something new and exciting and on the upswing where everyone's feeling optimistic and hopeful. Right. right? right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And it's just, you know, it's like a, it's a, it's a small house. I'd never worked with a small house before that was really fun and different. And they just, you know, we, we, they, they tried all these different things that, that I've never tried before that I think were really had a great impact. Like, you know, we did, um, you know, one of my characters in the book, Sam is a yoga teacher. So we did a collaboration with Tara Stiles, who's like a very well-known yoga teacher and sort of yoga influencer and has a yoga community. And we did events together and she did a lot of stuff on her social media. And then we did this collaboration with Citizens for Humanity, which is a, um, or Citizens of Humanity, which is a denim brand, denim and clothing brand. And they like made a t-shirt and I did an event with their CEO. And that's just, you know, that's just like stuff that I I don't like a traditional publisher, you know, traditional publishers don't do a lot of stuff that's like so sort of outside the box like that. So I thought it was just really fun. And and I had a great experience with the team and yeah, it was, it was, it was a blast. That's awesome. That's great to hear. It is. So touching a little bit more on, on the publishing world as a former publishing professional, I know that you have a unique bird's eye view into how the sausage gets made. So let's let's talk a little bit about how your previous work in publishing influenced is influencing your life as an author. And did you always know when you were working in house back then that that you wanted to be an author? Oh yes. Yeah, I wanted to be an author since I was a kid. So that was, you know, I I really I think I thought I was just going to like go into Doubleday and sneak it under Nancy's, you know, door and yeah. no, not really, but <laughs> sadly it wasn't it wasn't quite that straightforward. Um I think, you know, I I and people are always surprised to know that like I got I, my agent and actually Julie, I think we've had some similar experiences because I worked with two previous agents that I did not sell projects with as well. But the way I got my current agent who I've been with for nine years is just the old fashioned way. Somebody told me about her. I looked her up. I queried her. That was like, unfortunately, none of my publishing connections directly helped me get in. in. But I did, I did learn so much being behind the scenes. And, you know, I was a publicist. I think that's a really good sort of position for a uh, an aspiring author to hold because you really do see, you know, you really do see like books getting launched into the world and, and sort of what that entails. And, you know, yeah. I worked for an amazing boss. You'll remember her, Meg Allison Rich. Yeah. You know, I was started off as her assistant at Doubleday. She was an incredible mentor. And I just, it was so much fun. I mean, I was, you know, I was young. I was in my twenties and just working for Random House. Just like walking into Random House every day was like a real, as the kids say, it was a real main character moment, you know, coming through the, <laughs> the lobby. And, um, um, and, you know, I got to meet all these authors I really admired, and that was sometimes really fun and sometimes like, oh, gosh, I really wish I had met you in person. Yes, never meet your heroes, right? So, yeah, it's a, there was a little right. bit of that. I did. I will tell you, Meg, I, I saw Ian McEwen one time in the hallway and I ran away because I um, not because I have any reason to believe that he isn't a lovely man, but I was so worried that if like I met him and it was somehow a disappointing experience, oh, that it would use like one of my feeling. favorite authors. I know that feeling. So I remember, I remember Steve Rubin coming around with Pat Conroy one day and I hid in my office because uh-huh. I was, and I, this never happens to me really with writers very much just because, you know, we're in, in the business and you meet so many people, but I was so starstruck. I know, me too. Ian McEwen was the one. That was yeah. the one I couldn't handle. I saw him and I was like, nope, I turned yeah. around. <laughs> I wasn't going to be able to string a sentence together. And I'm like, I'm yeah. not going to fall on my face. So I'll just go <laughs> in my office and close the door. And then now, like after after that whole experience, I have so many clients who are actually dear, dear friends or were, may he rest in peace, dear friends of Pat Conroy. And they were like, you totally should have talked to him. He was such a sweetheart. Yeah. But, you know. <laughs> Live and learn. But yeah, I bet you it's, yeah. it's a blessing and a curse really to have come from in-house because you know when you're being lied to or, or BS, you know, and you know when a plan <laughs> is really not all the way there the way it could be. And you know when you're getting weak energy and high energy, like you've, you've yeah, done that. I mean, I, I think... I think it's, I will say yes. I think a blessing and a curse in some ways, but more of a blessing. I think, yes, you do know, like there are days where I'm like, I know too much, but I also (laughs) think that that like keeps you from spinning out and it keeps you from doing unhelpful things. Like, you know, I know for instance, that it's not going to be helpful to have my agent call the publicist every day 
and ask her a million questions because I was the publicist on the other end of that call. (laughs) You know what I mean? So it's like, I know that like having 18 brainstorming meetings is not going to get you anywhere. You know, it's like, it was really helpful to be on the other side of that. And it's like, I know what conversations are going on in the background. And like, and also, I mean, it's helped me appreciate how much the industry has evolved because I think something that really left a mark on me when I was a young publicist, um, you know, and this was back in, back in the aughts. um, And so we didn't have social media, podcasts. We didn't really have this like whole infrastructure that, you know, bookstagram, book talk, like all those things, like we didn't have them. And authors can get very grumpy about the existence of these things. But I always say like, I was a publicist before we had these things. And I can tell you what it was like then, because I remember this happened to me many times. And Doubleday publishes a lot of famous writers. And working on those books was one thing, right? It was like, you called NPR, you called New York Times. They're like, yes, yes. You just, you know, did the lineup, whatever. And then you would call them about your other books that were these beautiful debuts where you knew the author and they were so lovely and like they were going to be good even on radio and you could take them to a thing and they weren't going to be weird. And like, you're like, this person's lovely. Their book is so wonderful. And you just, you know, as the great Todd Doughty used to say, couldn't get him arrested in Times Square. You know, you just couldn't get (laughs) any. Yeah, it's just like you just didn't get because it was like producers and editors just making these calls. And you just have to get like you'd have to, you know, watch that author's book just kind of like sink beneath the waves. And it's it was really sad. And there wasn't really anything that they could do on a DIY basis. And now it's just completely different. Like it does feel like a lot that's on an author's plate to sort of do those self promo things. And at least there's, you know, at least there's avenues, you know, you don't have to sit there at least like there's avenues. doing nothing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you do see, I mean, like, it's very, I, I'm so, I'm always fascinated. Like, I think as much as I'm an author, I'm, I'm an industry person and I'm so interested to watch all of these trends and things like, you know, book talk, picking up things off like deep backlist and making them bestsellers. I mean, you just didn't have mechanisms to do that before. And so I think like on the whole, and you've seen like the numbers have gone up or industry has expanded because of these things. So sure. I think like that, that perspective has overall been helpful. Um, and 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 it it just i think it made me know how to be a good author to work with too because certainly like yes. i had really good experiences with authors and i had really bad experiences with authors and i can tell <laughs> you the ones that i did the extra stuff for were not the ones who had their agents call and yell at me because they weren't in the new york times yet right yes for example mm-hmm. i feel that mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah meg i know <laughs> Boy, I'm getting an education here behind the scenes. (laughs) What about you, Julie? In terms of promotion and what what part of it in terms of publishing and the experience with publishing or, you know, give me like a question exactly and I'll. Oh, I, I was just wondering if you were learning from what we're hearing as oh, well. Oh, yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I know. I'm like thinking about book talk and making videos and all that. But yeah, oh, no. I was thinking like, as Andrea was speaking, oh, no, I did not have my agent call my publicist. So I think already <laughs> I'm better. And I think being a debut author at 52 years old is is actually really great. Of course, I wanted to be published in my 30s and 40s. But I have perspective on it and I'm, I'm willing to put in a lot of my own, you know, time to make it as big of a, you know, sort of launch as possible. I keep describing this as like, I feel like when you have a little kid in a swing and you take it from the back and my kids love this and you pull it back and back and back and then you let it go. That's what I'm trying to do with my book baby. Like, give it as big of a push into the world as possible and know that I did everything I could, whether, you know, and then I am getting responses that readers now it's been out three weeks are loving it, are responding to it the way that I hoped, but, and then they'll tell other people. And at some point it's out of your control. Um, But like I'm making videos of myself in different blazers for, you know, I'm like naming my outfits and putting that on. Instagram. (laughs) I'm like trying ridiculous things just for people to feel like they get to know me and can connect with me as a human. And then also, you know, hopefully want to read my book and talk to me about that too. Well, yeah. And it's okay to have a little bit of fun with it. Right. Like, so so what if, so what if the silly blazer video isn't, quote unquote effective or gets the most views like who cares right yeah right right yeah yeah i think have a good time 
I love that. Julie, I think that's like, I mean, I'm an older, I'm an older mom. I had my, I first at 36 and my second at 40. And so like, I feel that way about being a parent, right? Like, just like sometimes having, having that extra, like extra experience is helpful. But I, I love that you say, yeah, like, I, I think you should have fun. I feel like on this book and like, because we changed houses, because all these things happened in my life between book three and four and that I actually just was like, oh yeah, it's cool to have a book out and it's fun and it's special that people will like pay their money to come inside your invented world. And like, that should just like, at the end of the day, like no matter what happens with the book, like it's still cool that you got a book published. It's on bookstore shelves. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Perspective. Perspective. Right. (laughs) Well, we are not done with the two of you yet. I have a couple of questions for the two Mm -hmm. of you. One of the things we do love is the titles of your books. The books are just like, they're exactly the titles that your books should have. So I first want to ask you, Julie, where did the title come from? Did you have any say in it? How did it come to be? So don't ever ask me to name a book. Not even (laughs) my own. I'm very bad at it, apparently. Originally, this was called A Great Fire. And then when I got my agent, Allison Hunter at Trellis, she um, asked me to write a prologue. And she, she just said, you know, even if you know Nantucket, people don't really know it in 1846. Can you give us like a right. bird's eye view? And so I did that. And the last sentence of the prologue is something like, um, every great fire begins with a tiny spark. Now, all Nantucket needs is for someone to light the fuse. And she loved the prologue and said, oh, let's go from a great fire to a tiny spark. So (laughs) we sold it to Mira, um, which is an imprint of HarperCollins with a tiny spark. And as my mentor and writing teacher and friend Jenna Blum said, you can't have tiny in your title. That's tight, you know, small. You have a big fire. You want to sell a lot of books. Get rid of tiny. And they promptly did. Um, And I've learned very interesting things, actually, about titles and covers and marketing in particular as uh, as a strategy to try to, you know, sell that book as quickly as possible. Mm. And it seemed to me that the formula they kept coming up with and giving me was person place Um, or like so like the Paris librarian, you know, or witches of Eastwick. So they first said the whaler's wife. And I was like, rah, rah, mm, that is yeah. one of my characters. She happens to be one of the white ones. And it's in relation to a man. So right away, I did not like that. We rejected that. And then they came back and said, we are calling it daughter singular of Nantucket. And Allison wrote back right away, daughter or daughter's with like several S's. And that was like the whole email. And then I wrote back something like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like I could just <laughs> like what she said, because it was confusing <laughs> to me to have three main characters and a singular in the title. And they kept it that way for a long time. And until they started to do cover concept and realize they had now this one white woman on the cover. Mm-hmm. And again, I was like, we have a real problem here. And, um, then they changed and then they tried to put three women on the cover and then it got very crowded on the cover. So <laughs> they decided. Um, and in that time I was gathering a lot of blurbs, you know, from Adriana Trigiani and other historical people I admire and Christina Baker Klein and everyone. And um, I think they saw that although it was a debut, I did have connections to the writing community that might help give this book a little more of that push I was talking about. And so they, actually decided to invest in original cover art for it. And um, my designer is the same person who designed um, the cover for The Lost Apothecary, Sarah Penner's novel. Oh, that's a great Yes, cover. yes. So if you put them side by side, you can kind of see that. Yes. Um, yeah, and so the, the saturated hues and the deep, dark kind of drama of it. And, yeah. and that has, a, I mean, people have really responded to both the title and the cover. And it, I really would not have known how to do that at all. And I've learned a lot about that. And yeah, so I think it's, it's beautiful. I'm happy with both things. It explains what the book's about and stands out, I think on the shelf. And I think Andrea's does too, although it's completely different sort of cover. Yes, completely different sort of cover. So Andrea, talk to us about your title and your cover and, and how those two, how those originated. 
Yeah, I have a I have a funny story about the title actually. So I this title comes from and I love the title so much. So I have to give credit where credit is due. When I was first working with so Lee, Lee Newman was still um still with Zibby Books when I was doing the edits for this book. And so when she first read it, she uh, the original title was Strangers, which is the name of the company that okay. is central in the book. And uh, she said, oh, I, you know, I love the book. Uh, we have to call it Women Are the Fiercest Creatures. And I was like, that's a cool title. I was like, where where does that come from? And she said, oh, you know, like Sam says to her class. And I was like, I don't think that's the line. And sure enough, it wasn't. She had misremembered the line. The line was actually mother is nature's fiercest creature, which is is also a cool line. But I was like, no, no, women are the fiercest creatures is way better. So I went back and edited the line to reflect that title because I just love the title so much. Um, and sh- sure enough, I think like this, this title has been the most evocative of all the titles of my books because I get asked about it the most. And, you know, like Citizens of Humanity made this shirt with it on it as a slogan and like it works sort of just as its own as like a standalone thing and people you know when I was out with the book at like PNBA trade show people walked by and they're like yeah you know um, just like (laughs) read the title and kind of like have their moment with it and so I was like cool you know I I think that that's that so that's been a really really fun to to have the title that that gets to people and yeah I I love the cover they actually this was really funny um they had a, a different cover originally that just had a totally different concept I really I really liked it as well but then um Zibby decided that they wanted to scrap that and, and and start over. And so I was actually sitting with uh, the team. We were all in Seattle for something. And I was sitting with Zippy and she said, oh, we'll just show you right now. We'll film your reaction. <laughs> and I was oh. like, oh, my God, I really hope I love it because I have a really bad poker face. And sure enough, I mean, I loved the cover when I when yeah. I saw it initially. So I was like, phew, you know, <laughs> but that was really funny. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Escape that, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, oh, God, because I mean, and I don't know. I've actually... I've had very good luck with both titles and covers in that I, the first, the the title for my first book took forever to come up with both She Regrets Nothing and We Came Here to Forget were like lines from those books that I pulled out to use as the title and the publisher liked them. And then the covers they showed me, I think I loved like every, I've loved every cover that, that my oh, publishers good. have done for that's me. So not, I've been very lucky in that because that can be, yeah. it's yeah, one of those things typical. where it's either like, it either like, fits right away or you have to go through you know it sounds like more like what what julie went through and i wanted to say julie kudos to you for being smart about things like not putting a white woman on the cover when there's because like again love publishing notably not a diverse industry (laughs) publishing will not protect you from from these things like publishing is not going to catch those yeah. things before they get out into the world. So like, yeah, I think as an author, like as authors, especially when, cause I also wrote about, you know, a char- I also have a character that's, that's a different race than I am. And it's like, you, you just have to be like, you can't, you can't put that on anybody else. Like publishing, unfortunately just has massive blind spots when it comes to things like that. Massive, yeah. Despite, despite some of the scandals that have happened. I, I don't know. We don't learn anything apparently. <laughs> interesting. I wasn't even sure if the person who was designing the cover, like how much they had Red, because you've only read the first two chapters. Yeah, that's <laughs> or they just get a brief. They get like a, a brief. They get yeah. like a brief, yeah. And then, um, and she was young. It was strange. But I think in terms of what you said about revising against that title or just changing your uh, quote in the book, I went back and looked at the relationships between daughters and mothers and made sure like I, I mentioned them in that way, like that there were plenty of daughters and mothers, but I had it helped me think about the book and a theme that I wanted to lean into more um, yeah. that I hadn't thought I of. That. And, and that I think of myself as a daughter of Nantucket. And there are people who are saying that to me too, as, as I go on tour. So. Well, I love, I love the title oh, evokes like there are all sorts of daughters of Nantucket, right? Like every woman's story mm-hmm. is so distinct and they're all a product of the same place in their own way. Yeah. yeah. I love it. Okay. <laughs> What is next for each of you? Julie, why don't you start us off? Sure. So, you know, we talk about the pantser, p- plotter and pantser. We talk also about killing your darlings, maybe yes. as a phrase you know, <laughs> yes. um, which means for those who are not writers or, or familiar, it means you have to cut someone, uh, a character or a scene that you love from your book because it doesn't work in service to the novel anymore. And I had a competing best friend. Like sometimes it's two, two similar characters. One time oh. I had to cut, there was a mother giving advice and a neighbor giving advice. You really only need one. 
And in this book, there was a best friend who was not a point of view character with Eliza, her best friend, and also Mariah. So I was able to give more to Mariah by cutting a woman named Nell Starbuck. But I love Nell Starbuck. So now there's a sentence early on that says, Nell Starbuck is currently traveling the globe with her merchant husband um, and, you know, away for several years. So I book two will be on that merchant ship with Nell Starbuck and her husband, Peter, and their daughter, Winifred, who I imagine was friendly with the Macy girls from the first book. And um, it will begin on Nantucket five years after the first book ends. It's a standalone, but um, it's, you know, so you can certainly just pick it up if you didn't read this one, you know, in order. And um, it will go by, you'll see. So there's like at the end of the book, there are some um, things that are sort of left unanswered in the first book at, in Daughter right. Nantucket. So you'll get a little more answers and then you'll get on that boat, a clipper ship the fastest sailing ships ever made and go to um, San Francisco at the height of the gold Ooh. rush and then off to China where calamity ensues. <laughs> calamity I ensues. love it. I want That's to read great. it already. I know me too. I, I, I did wonder at the end of this was, hmm, is there going to be a sequel? But mm. now I have my answer. Yeah, I love I that you're writing about the gold rush because that's not Philbrick's next book is about the gold rush. Is it really? Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't know that. Oh, good. I'll have to I'll have to read it. I'm spending very little time in San Francisco, but just enough. I don't think it's out till next year, maybe even the year after. Oh, okay. Don't quote me, but okay. he and, takes a long time between. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that. You know, I can say that about my books, that it'll take me a long time because I need to do research. And maybe I need right. to now wait. <laughs> For Nat's book to come oh, out, sure. <laughs> it gives me a lot of time. Um, and then I picture a third in the series about two sisters from Nantucket who go on a European tour, sort of like a room with a view, um, oh, you know, where they get educated. But it's not just your typical education. I'm going to make sure it's a little more um, sassy and sexy than oh, um, nice. just museums and uh, an ant following you everywhere. Great. Okay, Andrea, how about you? So for me, actually, the next couple of things, I, I am working on some more fiction, and I actually am also working on a sequel. I'm working on a sequel to my second book, which year gets nothing. Yeah. Um, so I always knew I would want to write something, event, uh, eventually, uh, a follow-up to that book. So, so that's what I'm working on on the fiction side. But my next uh, two things I have uh, coming out are actually on the nonfiction side of my life. So we are just getting ready to release the second season of my podcast, Nobody Should Believe Me, which is Yay. an investigative true crime podcast about Munchausen by proxy cases. Um, and I am actually writing my first nonfiction book. Um, I am co-writing it with a detective and we're writing about three of those cases and kind of the broader issue um, as well. And so that is coming out from St. Martin's sometime soon-ish. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, but that is that that is uh we we are we are working on that right now. So that has been totally different experience than working on oh, fiction. Awesome. Um easier in some ways, much harder in other ways. Um that's my first time I've ever co-written something. Um, you know, uh, th to say that there's a lot more research is an understatement by a million miles, but it has also been really interesting and really rewarding and just yeah, it's been it's been an interesting interesting sort of like new avenue to go down That's definitely awesome. true crime is so hot awesome. it, it just yes. continues to be it doesn't seem yeah to you know i think I think our, well, you know, I think our, our interest in true crime has always been, I think that's like sort of a, I think it's a perennial interest. I think it sort of takes different, it takes different uh, forms, but I think we're always like, just as a species, we're interested in sort of abnormal psychology and just what makes some people deviate from the societal script in a way that, that other people don't. And I think that those, those things are, are just endlessly fascinating and i i sort of thought i would just do one season of the podcast i did it as sort of a standalone um and then i was like oh no there's so much more to explore and, uh, and say about this issue and so many other interesting cases and so yeah that's nice. cool thank you 
Well, thank you both for joining us, um, Julie and Andrea. What a wonderful um, time this has been. And you've, you've just given us such great and important works for, for us and for our readers. Um, so can you just, before we say goodbye, we would love if you would tell our listeners how they connect, how they can connect with each of you both in person, if you guys are still touring and, and online. So um, Andrea, why don't you start? Where can everybody find you? Sure. So um, you can find me on my website, which is andreadunlop.net. But the most interactive place to find me is Instagram, where I am very online. That's really the only social media I use any longer. Um, You can find my podcast, which is the first season's out now, and that's just anywhere you listen to podcasts. Um, And I am not doing any more touring, but I am still doing some local events here in the Seattle area and in the North Sound, doing one with Elliott Bay Books. I'll do one with Edmonds Bookshop during the summer. So um, keep an eye out on that. I always put that stuff on my Instagram. Awesome. Great. How about you, Julie? You can find me also through my website, juliegerstenblatt.com. There's a little pop-up that will come up for signing up for my newsletter. And then you get kind of monthly updates on where I am and what I'm up to. And on Instagram at Julie Gerstenblatt, where you can see me trying on blazers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then... Yeah, at the end of April, I'll be on Nantucket for the Daffodil Festival for my Nantucket oh, launch. And I hope you have a yellow blazer ready for that. Oh, I have a yellow and white blazer. Don't awesome. you worry. Good. All set to go. And it's uh, I think it'd be fun to follow along because not everybody, you know, can get to Nantucket, but that's a really fun thing to see the Daffodil Festival. Definitely. Yeah. Well, this has been amazing. Thank you both so much. It's uh, so great to meet you, and I'm so glad we finally did this. Yes, thank me you. Too. Yeah, thank you for having us. Great to meet you, Julie. I want to read your book. Great now. to meet you too, Andrea. Yeah. Hey, yay. And a huge thank you to our listeners. Each week we're reminded how fortunate we are for your support in joining. Please be sure to pick up a copy of Daughters of Nantucket and Women Are the Fiercest Creatures on our Friends in Fiction Bookshop.org page. Save a little cash and support indie bookstores. We hope you'll join us again next week and please tell a friend. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends in Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.